Listen to these words of the resurrected Jesus when he commissioned his disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus commanded that his followers should be baptized. It's pretty clear, isn't it? But Christians disagree on what baptism actually means, uh, how it should be administered, and even who can rightly receive it. In fact, many of the denominations we have remain separate because of differences on the topic of baptism. Roman Catholics baptize babies as soon as they can. Greek Orthodox churches wait a little bit longer. Uh, Baptists only baptize adults and they do it by fully immersing them. Presbyterians tend to just sprinkle water or pour water over someone and they baptize babies too. Although I should say that Presbyterians do full immersions as well as this photo will show you up on the screen. Uh, I got baptized by a Presbyterian minister as part of a Presbyterian church at age 21. Uh, So that's that's my baptism story. But my wife Tracy, uh, there's a young Tracy on the left, Uh, My wife, Tracy, and our kids, they were all baptised as infants. And did you know that the Salvation Army doesn't even baptise people at all? With all of this diversity, it can be really hard to understand what is going on in Christian baptism. And so one of the reasons why we're having this sermon series on union and communion is to clarify some of these issues. Aaron and I want to bring clarity on local church membership, baptism and the Lord's Supper. This will help us as a church in our combined efforts of discipleship and it will help you to better understand how it is that we organise ourselves as a church. So this evening, I want to show you that baptism is a sign and seal of regeneration. And flowing out of this, it's about God's promises to us rather than our promises to God. And so when we get clarity on this, it will help us to answer questions like, who should be baptised? Why do we baptise people? So to get started, let's think about union with Christ. And here's our first main point. It's on your Connect card. Baptism is the sacrament of union with Christ. You can take the picture down here, good. So baptism is the sacrament of union with Christ and I know many people don't like that word sacrament. Uh, It reminds them of Roman Catholic teaching, their seven sacraments and the wonky theology that goes along with that. When I use the word sacrament, I'm thinking of a sacred pledge which points to God's promise of salvation. And there are only two for the Christian church. There's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these were both given by Jesus for the building up of his people. They were ordained by Jesus. And so some people, some churches, prefer to call them ordinances ordained by Jesus. I'm fine with that if that's what you want to do. Uh, I prefer the word sacrament. If you want to explore that idea some more, then I do have a handout on the welcome hub you can grab later. Now, since there are two sacraments, what distinguishes them? Well, a helpful way in my mind is to think of baptism as the sacrament of union with Christ, And the Lord's Supper is the sacrament of communion with Christ. Baptism comes first. 
it's received once, and then after that comes the Lord's Supper, and it's received frequently. This idea of baptism is clearly found in Romans 6, uh, which we had read out to us earlier. If you've got a Bible, turn to Romans 6, or have a look in your Connect card. And to set the scene, Paul is arguing in this part of his letter to the church in Rome that even though Christians are saved by God's grace and not saved by what we do, not by good works, it doesn't mean that we can keep going on sinning without caring. In fact, we have died to sin. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So the act of baptism is one of identifying with Christ so that his death and resurrection become our death and resurrection. This occurs when we have faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is about union. Uh, It's much like how a wedding ring points to a union. So my ring here on my finger tells you that I'm united to Tracy, who is my wife. We share everything together so that even her pain becomes mine and my victories become hers. We are united. In a similar way, baptism, uh, sorry, but this ring doesn't create the union, does it? This ring just points to the union. Generally, only married couples are supposed to wear wedding rings. In a similar way, baptism is given to members of the visible church. We give it to those who are part of Jesus' gathered people. A condition of becoming a church member is that you first need to be baptised, which is in obedience to Christ's command in Matthew 28 that we read out before. It's a sign for God's visible church. This raises the question of baptising infants. We're going to talk about that later. So thinking again about marriage, my wedding ring itself is not a picture or an explanation of my marriage union with Tracy. It's a sign in the sense of it being an indicator, like an arrow or something, uh, but it doesn't explain the significance of marriage, does it? I mean, perhaps if someone had a ring that was made up of two different types of metal that were all sort of interweaved together, that might show a picture, a sign of what marriage is. In the same way, baptism in one sense is a sign of union with Christ in that it points to that, but in another sense it's actually a sign of something else. Now this might challenge some of us, uh, but I think we often get a bit confused when we come to Romans 6 in terms of explaining what is acted out in baptism. Uh, A Christian goes under the water and comes back up as a sign of dying and rising with Christ. That's how we often read it. But I actually think Romans 6 is more about the result of baptism. See, it's an indicator of what happens in baptism. Uh, See that Paul says in verse 3 of Romans 6 that Christians are baptised into Christ. And then in verse 4 he says that we are buried with Christ through baptism. In other words, baptism is not about dying and rising, but it is a key part of how we come to die and rise with Christ. I think a much better way to approach this is to say that baptism is a sign of cleansing in regeneration. This is our next main point on our outlines. Baptism is a sign of cleansing in regeneration. 
So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Titus 3, or it's in the Connect card as well. So in this letter, Paul is writing about what happens when someone becomes a Christian. I'm going to read out verses 4 to 6 for us. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Paul is talking about the good news of salvation here. So we're not saved, oh, sorry, we're not saved by what we do, we are saved by God's mercy. And the means of us becoming saved is through spiritual cleansing or washing. Now, we all know that we're dirty. I don't mean that some of you forgot to have a shower this morning. What I mean is we are spiritually dirty. Before God, we're not pure, we're we're not perfect, we're not clean people. Our sins are like spots or blemishes. We are spiritually dirty. Our rebellious words and deeds, our law-breaking, our mistreatment of other people, our selfishness and our failings, these make us impure. Let's imagine that God is a cleaner and he's going to come to clean up this world. And we all want that, don't we? We want this world to be cleaned up. Well, he's going to throw us into the bin because we are not clean. Our only hope for escaping God's big clean-up is to have ourselves first cleaned. We need our hearts cleaned so that we are pure. And that's what Jesus came to do. He died on the cross in our place and took our punishment upon himself. If you like, he was thrown into the bin instead of us. But also his good deeds became ours so that we look clean to God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And so now anyone can be cleansed by Jesus if they simply put their faith in him. So the link back to baptism then is that when we put our faith in Jesus, his death becomes ours through our union with him. But the means of us becoming spiritually cleansed is it's not the water, it's the activity of the Holy Spirit. Look again at the second part of verse 5 in Titus 3. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? To wash us clean, to remove our sins. We get a fresh start. And the word there for rebirth could also be translated as regeneration. It's about being born again, spiritually speaking. So water baptism is the physical sign that points to this spiritual reality. The physical washing points to a spiritual washing. And it occurs spiritually when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone in response to their faith in the good news about Jesus. That's what Peter says in his speech to the gathered people in Acts 2, 38. I'll read it out. Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is why I say that baptism is the sacrament of union with Christ but it's not necessarily a sign or a picture of union with Christ. It's actually a sign or a picture of cleansing, the cleansing in regeneration. So let's think again about a wedding ring. Uh, 
It's a pointer to a marriage union, but what is it a picture of? What's its symbolism? And people have different ideas about this, but a common one is that the shape of a ring is unending, and so it points to unending love. It's very sweet, isn't it? And so this physical object points to a greater, even non-physical reality, that the tangible points to the intangible. In the same way, the washing of water in baptism points to the greater reality of washing by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons why pouring or sprinkling water is an appropriate mode for baptism because it points to that reality, the Spirit coming upon you. So hopefully you're all still tracking with me. If you're not, now's the time to check back in. Many of us are still probably thinking, but what about babies? How can you give the sign of baptism to someone who can't express faith? Well, we give physical baptism to members of the visible church, but this baptism is only spiritually effective for members of the invisible church. Let me unpack that. Uh, You might recall Aaron last week made this distinction. Uh, Our gathered local church, Darabin Presbyterian, is part of the worldwide visible church. Uh, As someone said in our gospel community during the week, uh, your local church is about the Christians you can poke, okay? because they're close by, you gather with them. The pokeable, prodable church, right? But there's a universal, invisible church made up of all true believers across time, even those who have already died. They are part of the one invisible church that you can't see. Now, being a member of a local church doesn't guarantee that you're saved, does it? Now, what that means is being part of a local visible church doesn't guarantee that you're part of the universal invisible church made up of true believers. Also, not being a member of a local church doesn't mean that you can't be part of the invisible church. Now, physical baptism with water ordinarily goes along with becoming a member of a local church, of a visible church, but it doesn't automatically make you a Christian, does it? It doesn't automatically make you a member of the invisible church. Baptism points to that. It points to union with Christ. It doesn't create it. So what is it that makes baptism effective? Well, it's the faith of the individual. Yet the power in baptism doesn't come from our faith, it actually comes from God's promises, which he seals upon us with a guarantee. This is our next main point. Baptism is a seal of God's promise of regeneration. I think most Christians are fine with the idea that sacraments are signs, they point to something. But the Bible indicates that there are also seals. And this is a a harder concept. Baptism is a sign and seal of regeneration. The sign part is about the spiritual reality it points to. The seal part is about the certainty that this spiritual reality will be received by anyone who adds faith to the sign. Now you might know the idea of seals, kind of picture a, a bit of red wax on an envelope and someone's put their mark on it to seal it. And that's a guarantee, isn't it, that the letter inside the envelope is authentic, it's legitimate, because someone's put their seal on it. But let me give you another illustration of what a seal might be and how a seal works. 
I'm going to put a picture up here of a check that I've written out. A check for $100. Now you all know what a check is, right? My parents used to use checks. Some of you maybe have never actually touched a check. On a check, someone writes down an amount of money. They write down who they want to pay it to, but then the most important step is they have to sign it. That's what shows that it's legitimate. And so my $100 check here is a sign because it points to a greater reality, doesn't it? It's not the $100 itself. It represents or points to the money. But this is not an empty sign that has no value. See, if I got a piece of paper and just wrote 100 with a dollar sign at the front, that's kind of a sign or a symbol of $100, isn't it? But it's worthless. You won't actually get $100 from a piece of paper with that written on it. But a check has real value, doesn't it? It's a promise from me to you that you can have $100. It's got my signature on it as a pledge or guarantee. And in one sense, I can't back out of it. If you go to the bank and deposit the check, then it's guaranteed that you will get the money. My word stands behind it. But what happens if you don't bank the check? You never get the money. So the check is a sign and a seal. It has real value and comes with a promise, but it's not to be confused with the actual $100. It's not $100. When it comes to sacraments in the Bible, they're not just signs, they're also seals. We have an example in Romans 4. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Romans 4. You can take the slide down now, thanks too. Romans 4, Paul is talking about circumcision, which was an old covenant sacrament. It was given to Abraham and his descendants. And circumcision pointed to salvation and it was given to members of God's visible people, which in those days was Israel. Now some Jews in Paul's day, after the coming of Jesus, they believed that circumcision brought about salvation and righteousness. But he argues that faith leads to righteousness. So circumcision is a sign of righteousness. It's a seal that guarantees righteousness, but only for those who have faith. So let's have a look at Romans 4, verses 9 to 12, and see if you can spot the word seal. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, there's a lot in here, isn't there? And this is kind of Paul's legal argument, but I want to make a simple point. Circumcision was a seal for Israelite males. It was a seal that acted as a guarantee from God. All who had faith would receive the spiritual reality symbolized by the sign, by circumcision. This is much like baptism. 
Now, you won't find baptism referred to as a seal in this way in the Bible, but there is a clear link made between circumcision and baptism. Uh, Turn with me to Colossians 2, and you'll see these verses are on the Connect card too. I'm not going to go into all the detail here, so get along to your gospel community this week because we will be studying this passage. In verses 11 to 12, Paul is writing about Christ and the believer. He says this, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So Paul is arguing here that physical circumcision pointed to a spiritual circumcision not done by human hands. And think about the sign meaning, the significance here. It's having the flesh or the sinful nature cut off, removed. It's actually another way of talking about cleansing, about regeneration. Now what's really fascinating is that Paul says that these Colossian Christians who are not Jews have experienced this cutting off of the flesh. They've experienced this regeneration. But when did it happen? Verse 12, in their baptism. In other words... Paul views baptism and circumcision as pointing to the same spiritual reality, the cutting away or the washing away of our sin and our sinful nature. So I think we can legitimately view baptism as both a sign and a seal because that's how God's sacraments work. The seal aspect shows that there's a real connection between water baptism and the spiritual baptism it points to. Baptism is a promise or pledge from God that if we have faith, we will certainly be united to Christ. And then the washing away of sin that's symbolised by the water will actually occur. If you like, the check of baptism is banked when we have faith. And here's the thing, here's the real challenge. The faith can even come after the baptism. This is a bit like how you might have the desire the belief to bank a check and if you've already got that check you can bank it straight away and get the money or you might not have the check yet so you come to me and you ask for me to write it out and then you can go bank it. Either way, the key is your desire. It doesn't get banked unless you actually do something, unless you have that desire. But it's my signature that guarantees you will get the money. And so the key point in comparing baptism and checks is that there's a real connection between the physical object and what it signifies. Now, some of you might be worried about where I'm going with this. So let's talk about three different ways that the physical reality and the spiritual reality can be connected. There's the mechanical view, the memorial view, and the means of grace view. So three M's for you. The mechanical view said there's total union between baptism and regeneration. This is the view of the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. Once a baby or adult is baptised, they believe that God's grace is automatically, mechanically conveyed to them and that's why it's called the sacrament of regeneration. Hopefully you can see that this is not what the Bible teaches. If you do have questions though, come and speak to me later. The second view is the memorial view. It says there's total separation between baptism and regeneration. This is often a view that Baptists take. 
Baptism is seen as merely symbolic and contains no power, no guarantee to affect the forgiveness of sins. The emphasis is totally on the individual's faith and their commitment to God. If there's no faith, then the baptism was meaningless. And so it's for this reason that some churches will rebaptize people if they feel that their first baptism wasn't actually received in faith. So let's say a 15-year-old professes faith in Christ, they're baptized, but they show no fruit of repentance, no sign that the Spirit's at work in their life. And then imagine at age 20, they come to their senses and realize they never had true faith in Christ. They realize they thought they were a Christian, but they actually weren't. And so they truly convert now. They now have faith. Should they be baptized again? See, most Christians would say, yes, they have to be baptized again because the first one was invalid. But the second baptism is not necessary because there is a real connection between baptism and regeneration. The promise was held out to them. It was a real promise in baptism and it wasn't received by this particular person at age 15, but the promise wasn't withdrawn either. The promise still stands. And so they can receive the promise now at age 20 instead when they add faith to the sign. So it's not a mechanical connection where baptism saves you and it's not a memorial connection where it's just sort of almost an empty picture that doesn't have any connection. It's a means of grace connection. And so in the means of grace view, there's not a physical union between the two. There's a spiritual union between baptism and the salvation it points to. It's a means that God has graciously given us to offer grace to us. He promises all who add faith to the sign of baptism will receive the spiritual regeneration it points to. And so this regeneration might come before baptism, it might come after baptism, and in one sense it doesn't matter because the promise is still sealed upon the recipient. God's guarantee is still there. Our role is to have faith, just kind of like banking the cheque. And when we do so, God's grace is communicated to us so that we are saved and so we are built up in our faith. So let's come back to the idea of wedding rings to see how baptism is a promise that's given to us rather than a promise or a confession we make to God. My wedding ring is a sign to all of you of my marriage to Tracy. It points to the fact that I'm married. It's a sign, isn't it? But it's also a seal. It's a pledge or promise from Tracy that she will keep the vows she made to me on her wedding day. She gave me this ring. So even though it's kind of my ring, I wear it, it's actually Tracy's ring given to me. It's for me alone. So it's a sign to all of you but it's only a seal to me. In the same way, baptism is a sign to everyone of God's promises, but it's only a seal to the individual who receives it. So with all of this in mind, we're going to move to our final big point. And if you have found this hard and you've tuned out a bit, now you can tune back in to kind of get all the answers, right, about infant baptism. This is what you're thinking about. Who is baptism for? It's for believers and their children. This is to answer the question, who should be baptised? And all Christians agree that believers should be baptised. 
those who profess faith in Jesus Christ should receive the sacrament of union with Christ. Adult baptism is about a believer making a break from their old life and receiving the pledge from God that faith in Jesus leads to regeneration. When they receive this sacrament of union with Christ, they're normally welcomed into membership of a local church as an expression of not only their union with Christ, but their union with his people. They are now part of the family of God. But how should we view the children of these believers? Well, the Bible indicates that they are part of the visible family of God too. They may be junior members, they may not have the full rights of an adult yet, but we don't view them as unbelievers or outsiders, do we? Acts 2, 37-39 speaks of this. We heard verse 38 before, but I'm going to add a bit more context. Uh, Peter is preaching to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. For all, to all the Jews who have come to Jerusalem for the festival and he's declaring to them the gospel. I'll read from verse 37. When people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter says this promise is for his hearers and their children. Not for their children when they grow up, but for their children on that very day. Now, some people may not agree on that. We might sort of debate about it. But let me present you with an argument that's actually helped me in nutting through this. Under the Old Covenant, the sign of circumcision was given to men who joined God's people, who became Israelites, and it was also given to the male infants of God's people, to male Israelite boys, uh, male Israelite infants, I should say. Now, with the change to the New Covenant, the sign has changed from circumcision to baptism. But it's also been offered now to women. But what about children? Have we moved from a male-only sign, male adults and infants, to an adult-only sign? I think not. I think it's better to believe that it's expanded rather than reorientated. And if the sign of the covenant was no longer to be given to children, then why is it not made clear in the Bible? I mean, think about it. This would have been such a monumental shift for the Jewish people who for centuries had been applying the sign of the covenant to their children. Surely Peter would have made a clarifying point about it in Acts chapter 2. So often people talk about how there's an absence in the Bible of a command to baptise infants, therefore we shouldn't do it. But I believe it's the other way around. There's an absence of a command in the Bible to stop giving the sign to the children. Now there are many more arguments we could make as to why we should baptise the infants of believers. But I think it does become easier when we understand that baptism is primarily about God's promises to us and not our commitment to him. Also, when we understand that faith can come before or after the sign, that helps too. And that the seal component of baptism guarantees that the sign will still be effective even if faith comes after receiving the sign. Now, I have printed out an FAQ, insert in your Connect cards. You can have a look later or ask me some questions. 
Now, before I wrap up with some application, I want you to be clear on one thing, two things. I'm not saying that water baptism as a means of joining God's people means that a baptised person is automatically saved. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what Presbyterians believe. Water baptism doesn't join you to God's invisible people. It joins you to God's visible people. Number two, what I am saying is that the children of believers ought to be treated as junior members of God's people until such time as they can either make their own credible profession of faith or they decide to reject Jesus and leave the visible church. So let's apply this. First of all, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then thank you so much for bearing with us in this in-house discussion. You might be thinking, these Christians are crazy. This is an important topic for us to talk about. If you're not a Christian or you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, then the application, what you should take away from this is, turn to Jesus and receive forgiveness, receive the spiritual washing that he promises you so you can stand before God and know that you've been cleansed. That's, that's what you need to do today. If you are a Christian and you haven't been baptised, then I urge you to do so. It's a matter of obedience to Christ. But it's also a means of grace. God has generously given us this sign as a way to build up our faith, but also build up the faith of others, to encourage others. And if you've got questions about this, or perhaps even reservations about what it means and how it will work and you know, different modes of baptism, if you've got those sort of questions, please speak to me or to Pastor Aaron. And if you're a Christian and you have an unbaptized child, then I encourage you to consider having them baptized. And this is probably really relevant for younger children too. I'm not talking about your 15-year-olds. Um, so if you'd like to consider this option, then please do speak to us. And perhaps this would be a good prompt. Maybe some of you have been meaning to get your infants baptised, just haven't got around to it yet. Here's your reminder. Uh, Aaron's already got a few booked up for the rest of the year. It'd be great to have even more. Now finally, let's say you're a Christian and you don't agree with the position on baptism that I've presented. That's okay. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you. I'm happy to hear your ideas. We can discuss it. But more importantly, let me make it clear that you're welcome in this church. You can be a member in this church. You don't have to hold the same view of baptism as the leaders, as the elders. And you certainly don't have to believe in infant baptism to be a member of our church. Let me make that very clear. As Aaron said last week, we're not a coconut church that's hard to get into. We're a peach church with a soft outside, but we have a strong, firm centre. And we want to be centred on the gospel, what unites us as Christians, what's important. We don't want to make it hard for people to be part of our family. So baptism is a wonderful gift from God. He gives it to us to build up our faith so that we can be assured that we are washed clean by the death of Jesus. And so we should make good use of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of baptism and how it points to the spiritual cleansing that you promise to all who have faith. Lord, I pray you'd help us each to make up in our own minds uh, what it is we believe about this sacrament. And we pray that we as a church would be united on the key things, focusing on the gospel, 
but also make good use of baptism for our good and for your glory. Amen.